Well, good afternoon, everyone. First of all, we want to thank you for tearing yourselves away from the barbecues this afternoon and lunches of various sorts to come and hear our panel. We think we've got a, a great group of folks that I'm sure you're going to enjoy hearing from, so thank you uh, for coming out this afternoon. Uh, my name is Patrice Hayden. I am the class of 2002 here at the law school. Um, and I, um, by virtue of being here at the law school, um, am also one of our second acts. I practiced in DC for um, eight years before returning to the law school to work in career services. Um, and I give you that intro to say that um, there are all sorts of um, kinds of transitions that people make in at various stages of their lives. And so, um, <coughs> I think that you'll find there's something for everyone in our panel today. Um, so first I'm going to give very, very brief introductions and I'll let our panelists talk more about kind of what they're doing um, and their career paths. Um, so starting immediately to my left from the class of 1987 is Ridge Schuyler. And then, <laughs> and then sitting next to him uh, from the class of 1997 is Salman Shomade. And next to him, from the class of 1992, is Jennifer Nelson Coleo. And then my classmate uh, from the class of 2002 is Kit Ballinger. Um, so welcome, everyone. Thank you. And so we'll go in the reverse order of, of my introductions. And so Kit, can you start us off and talk to us a little bit about your career path? Sure, I'd love to. Uh, so as Patrice said, I, I was a classmate of hers in the class of 2002. I was the law school's first Powell Fellow, uh, which is a fully funded year spent after graduation in a public interest law position. So I went straight into the Legal Aid Bureau of Maryland, where I represented children in need of assistance. Maryland was one of only three states at the time that provided an attorney ad litem for children who had open cases with the Department of Social Services. So my clients were birth to 21 years old. Um, I really and truly loved that job. And I was very fortunate the law school extended that fellowship for a second year, and then Legal Aid was able to keep me on after that for some time. Um, and I know a lot of people really struggled after law school, not sure they were in a good fit position. Mm -hmm. This was a great fit position for me, and I really cared for this job. However, I did at certain points, and towards the end of my career there, have 120 clients uh, at any given point in time. And with a full litigation schedule, uh, mm -hmm. that was very challenging. Uh, and especially challenging as uh, it was not the most compatible with childbearing of my own. So when our firstborn child was uh, just over a year old, I stepped away from legal aid. And within a few months, I started volunteering for a local literacy organization, serving a very similar client population. I was working with kids reading aloud to them in transitional housing <coughs> situations. Ended up going on the board of that organization and became very interested in the methodology behind the work that we were doing with the kids. That led to a grad school class and eventually that led to my full enrollment in and receipt of a Master of Librarian Information Science, which is why I'm now a youth services librarian in the DC metro area. I work for a nonprofit that brings a very wonderful and talented children's authors and illustrators into Title I schools. The students that we serve there now are, uh, minimum 50% of them are receiving free and reduced meals. Our average is actually 88%. It's a very high poverty um, and uh, low service school areas, I suppose you could say. And we use the funds that we raise to provide a copy of the book for every child that we meet with and a full collection 
position for each classroom library and school library. So I'm still serving a very similar client population as I was serving as a lawyer and doing child advocacy. I'm just coming at it from a different angle. Great, thank you. Jennifer? Well, I'm just going to say that was incredibly to the law school, I spent some time running around collecting degrees, got an engineering degree, general science, went to Darling. And so the reason why, the reason for coming to law school was quite different for many people. I mean, I was interested, I was inquisitive, and I thought, you know, having a law degree was going to afford me the opportunity to kind of do things I really enjoy doing, which is kind of assisting young people and all that stuff. But you know, you get to the law school and I got lazy. I, I mean, I can I take the blame, but to some extent, it's just the way the system is set up. Once you start, with, you know, people start looking for jobs. Employers who are coming to me left and right. Why? Yo, we have an MBA. Of course, we want this guy. And so the reason for coming, which was, you know, I was going to get the law degree and I was going to go use it to do something 
very interesting, away from law farm. That got swept aside. You know, went to the law firm. Interestingly, we were sitting in this classroom called the Patrick Salting. That was my first law firm. And I went there as a first year summer associate. I was given a permanent job offer after my first year. So, you know, it was again, I didn't really spend the time kind of considering the possibilities of other things I could do um, outside of just going to law firm. So, finished law school, you know, took the bar and all that, and I started at the Patrick Salting. Great farm, great people. I have nothing but good things to say about them. But, you know, after a year or two, I'm kind of looking inward and saying, this is not really me. This is not really the reason why I want to get a law degree. I just happened to live in a household, married to a woman that's an academic, and she got some great job offer in Arizona. So we were gonna leave to go from Atlanta to Arizona. So we moved. And I kept practicing um, for another year or two. I was still, this is not you, this is not why, the reason why you went to law school. I mean, I was doing well in the law firm, but it was still just not fulfilling. I wasn't, it was something to do. And eventually, the wife convinced me that, okay, um, you spent all this time collecting degrees. Maybe you ought to consider actually spending time on campus teaching, doing something like that. I said, seriously, yeah, maybe, maybe so. Uh, of course, some people will say, why didn't you just consider going to teach in the law school? But um, I said, no, as much as I love some of my law school professors, I also I did not quite like some of them, what they do, the lifestyle. I said, if I'm going to teach, I would have the possibility of teaching all that stuff. And in line with the kind of person I am, I was also curious. I still wanted to be engaged. So I said, you know what? I've gotten all these degrees. I've not gotten a degree in political science. Let me go back to school and get a degree. <laughs> <laughs> so, I know. And we happened to be in Arizona. It was convenient. The wife's um, career was taking off. She was about to get tenure. So I just applied to school and enrolled in the, uh, the PhD political science in um, Arizona. Four years later, I got a degree. And I realized at that time, in the process of doing that, my first year, of my PhD, my um, uh, dissertation chair called me into his office and said, hey, we have a law degree, we have things for you to teach. And so my first year summer, uh, of my first year in law of uh, PhD, once I was giving that class to teach, I called the board. I said, this is me. This is what I really want to do. This is what I've been searching for. This is the thing that I've been, the entire thing I've been wanting to do. And um, so I finished the PhD, got my job at University of New Orleans, um, went there and for the first time in my life, actually stayed in a job for five, six, seven years. Got tenured after five years, was a transition to go to Tulane, where my wife uh, was a professor. And then, you know, they came calling, Emory University in Atlanta came calling for her. They offered a job. I became the trailing spouse, they offered me a job, and now <laughs> both of us at um, Emory University, I'm teaching, I'm a professor of political science, and enjoying it and loving life. The one thing I would say is the law degree, of all the degrees, if I were to give all of them away, the law degree is one that I will not give away, and I can speak to more about that later in the conversation. That's great. Well, I counted, I think I've had five career changes since law school, so if I got two minutes for every career change, <laughs> um, 
Uh, thank you all for coming. It is not easy to compete with pulled pork, so I do appreciate your, your being here. Uh, I will start, as I am required to do, with the obligatory Thomas Jefferson quote. If we're talking about second careers or third careers or fifth careers, it's about change. And Thomas Jefferson said that all experience hath shown that mankind is more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by becoming uh, uh, changing the forms to which they become accustomed. In the Twitter world, we would say change is hard, and it is. And I've gone through a lot of changes, and it has been hard, but like the Revolutionary War, it was worth it. So a lot of good stuff came out of it. So I'm going to set my watch for two minutes. I, uh, as you'll hear, work in the United States Senate, and I learned filibustering, and if I don't set a watch, you will hear from me from the rest of the rest of the day. So uh, like a lot of folks, I left law school in 1987, was channeled into the law firm, and I went to work in New York City, even though I'm from Orange County, Virginia, a county of 3,000 people, and I had about 3,000 people working in the building where I was. Uh, and I worked there for a couple of years. I began to get an inkling that maybe trial work, I was in the litigation department, that maybe trial work wasn't for me because the very first words ever uttered to me by a judge were, shut up, counselor, you'll have your chance. <laughs> so I worked in the, in the law firm for a couple years, and, and, the, and the reason I decided to leave was I was sitting uh, in a partner's office beautiful, uh, we were on the corner of 59th and 5th, he had floor to ceiling windows in a beautiful partner's um, uh, office. Uh, it was a Saturday, we were going over a brief that I had written, and he got a call from his wife. She was with the kids in the Hamptons where they had a house, and I'm thinking, so your family's out at the Hamptons where you can afford a house, but you're sitting here with me on this beautiful Saturday. And I thought, this is just not what I want to aspire to do. I loved my work in New York, but I thought that is not what I wanted to do the rest of my life. So I came back to my hometown and practiced law here for a while. So I went from a 425 attorney firm to a two attorney firm. That was quite a culture shock. But after a while, it occurred to me that the thing that I was not enjoying about the practice of law was as a trial attorney, it was necessarily backward looking. It was about assigning blame for things that had happened in the past. It helped one person at a time, and it was kind of locked into the way things had always been done, stare decisis. I'd point to some thing, and especially in Virginia, it's how things have always been done. And I thought, I don't want to be looking backward in my life. I don't want to be just affecting one person at a time. Uh, I don't want to be locked in the way things have always been done. So I quit that job and became the driver for a candidate who was running for Congress because it occurred to me that legislation rather than litigation was what I wanted to do. I wanted to write laws and change how people's lives uh, proceeded under the law. And so I became the driver for a candidate who ran for Congress. He did not win. And I camped out on a friend's couch, Tom and Molly Walls. I camped out on their couch for four months and just papered Washington, D.C. with my resume until I landed a job with Congressman Rick Boucher. I became his energy and environment legislative assistant, doing energy and pol energy policy work primarily. Uh, after a year and a half, he promoted me to chief of staff. And then I was enticed over to the Senate side to become the chief policy advisor for United States Senator Chuck Robb. I worked for Chuck Robb for eight years. I advised him right out of a job. Uh, <laughs> moved back to Charlottesville, uh, practiced law for about 10 minutes, remembered why I left it in the first place, <laughs> and went to work at the Nature Conservancy here in Charlottesville where uh, another law school classmate worked, uh, Greg Edwards, he was at the Nature Conservancy, and I protected rivers and streams, and I did that for about seven years, uh, protecting the Rappahannock River and, and forests on the, on the eastern slopes of the Blue Ridge. And it was great because you had results you could walk around on. And at the end of my time in Congress, very little was happening. Nothing, you know, you, there weren't any results to walk around on. So I worked for the Nature Conservancy, but I felt 
a pullback to helping people, which was what it, you know set me off originally in my career. And I met with Congressman Tom Perriello, who had won a, a kind of an upset victory in my district uh, here around Charlottesville. And he offered me the job as the district director, his boots on the ground in the district. So I worked for Congressman Perriello for two years until he was defeated um, in the election of, of uh, 2010. Um, let me just say as a side note, it is not easy to be fired by 119,000 people, but that's what happened. <laughs> um, and when I was working for Congressman Perriello, uh, I had a lot of people walking across the street. I, our office was intentionally positioned in the middle of the city of Charlottesville, and I had people walking across from public housing saying, I just want a job. And a lot of people being left behind in our economy uh, that I thought we ought to be able to find some way to get them work. And so uh, I did some research after Tom was defeated and found that 29% of Charlottesville's families did not earn enough to be self-sufficient, um, which was shocking both to me and to the, the powers that be in Charlottesville. Uh, and so I uh, became the director of, uh, of a, a thing called the Charlottesville Works Initiative, which was an affiliate of the the Charlottesville Regional Chamber of Commerce to try to end poverty by finding quality jobs for people who are being left behind and overlooked by our economy. Uh, I've been doing that since 2011. Uh, and last year, I was offered a position at the local community college. The president of the community college saw what I was doing, and he thought that's what the community college should have been doing along, for a long time, which is identifying the people being left behind and giving them everything they need in order to succeed. And so he essentially created a position at the community college called uh, the Division of Community Self-Sufficiency Programs, and I'm now a dean at the local community college moving people into quality jobs. I told you it was going to be a good panel. <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit, you, and you all have kind of hit on this a little bit in your, um, your intros, but I want to talk a little bit about the decision to take additional degrees or take class or classes to get to where you are. I mean, for many of us, particularly the younger folks, there's already the debt of having you know, completed this degree. Can you talk a little bit about the decision to go forward with education? And Kim, I'm gonna start with you. Sure, I, uh, I didn't take the decision lightly, um, both financially and also the impact on my family, mm -hmm. uh, that choice to stay home with them. A credit to my husband who is here, who's also class of 2002, and to my kids because I took night classes. Um, so the impact was real on my family uh, and I appreciated their support in being able to do that. Uh, I found a way to do in-state, which helped. Um, Virginia, oddly, was living in Virginia at the time. Virginia does not have a library school. Um, note to the powers that be University of Virginia that are listening to that. <laughs> Very disappointing. Um, but we are part of something, um, that a consortium of states that have agreed that if your home state does not offer a particular degree, you can apply to a school in the consortium that does offer that degree. And if you're admitted to the school, this academic common market it's called, then you can petition to your home capital to be granted in-state tuition at that other state. So I was able to actually apply to one of the best youth services graduate programs for library in the country, which was Florida, um, and get enrolled at, in Florida, and then petition Richmond to be granted in-state tuition status in Florida, and Virginia helps defray the cost um, of that degree. So I, I will say, once you make that decision, I, I, there, are, there are ways that may not be the most obvious of making it financially feasible, mm -hmm. and by doing classes in the evening, they were online, but they were synchronous, which meant that you had to be there and engaged. I, um, 
would have to have that little headset, you had to actually talk to your professor and your classmates and be engaged in that process, which was a very meaningful connection for me, someone who had enjoyed being in the classroom setting. It made me feel more connected to the program and to the learning process. Um, so despite not having the visual face-to-face -face components of learning, um, it was six to eight with the same people and I would be speaking and engaged with them. Jennifer? Yeah, um, I think this is kind of interesting because I actually decided not to get a degree, um, in part because my business was already sort of taking off and I sort of couldn't leave my business to go back to school to get a formal degree in landscape architecture, which is what I would do, which is a negative for me and an aspect of my job that I have to either bring in an architect or an engineer if I need uh, you know, a professional in those circumstances. <coughs> Although in a way that's a great collaborative relationship of having other professionals that you're working with who are bringing their own expertise to it. But I did take classes informally and I sort of also credit this with the law school education that I, and practicing law that I do think another benefit that you do get out of working in a legal setting is the ability to teach yourself anything. I also was a litigator and I had cases involving you know, products issues where I had to learn everything about catheters for open heart surgery. Mm -hmm. And I had cases where I had to learn everything about the securities market. And I think that's another aspect of the law that does train you for other professions. So in effect, I'm self-taught in my new profession mm -hmm. um, with a little bit of supplemental coursework that was very affordable, like <coughs> $200 kind of thing. And I think that that's another benefit of legal training and a legal career for some period of time is being able to put yourself in a position where you can teach yourself any profession. And so I would say that in a lot of situations, if you have an interest in something, you can probably learn a lot about it and possibly turn it into a second career. But interestingly for me, what the decision to go get another degree was, as you guys know, was it was easy because of course, of course. You know, family members would joke and say, okay, yeah, so you're going to get another degree, what is his name? That's just Salmon being Salmon. Uh, interestingly though, I was much more concerned about paying off my remaining law school debt because the P many PhD programs, for the most part, it pays its way. I mean, it was, they pay for me to go to school. They, not only that, they pay for the tuition and stuff, but they also give me stipend. Uh, and, and, and I can't discount the fact that having a spouse, a, a supportive spouse, would thought that would really be what I, you know, would fit the kind of person I am. So the, on the home front, and there were no kiddos at that time, you know, there are two of them running around now, but there were no kiddos, so it was essentially, she said, of course, we have to take care of us. Um, so that was easy, and knowing that the program, the PhD was gonna, I wasn't gonna have to come out of pocket for anything, that was easy. What was more concerning to me was I just ate debt. I, I don't like debt. In fact, I don't have a credit card now. I only have a debit card. And so what I thought, the reason why in fact it took me seven years to go back was I wanted to kind of reduce the debt level. So I became very aggressive. So thanks to Kripatik Stockton and all other law firms, they paid very handsomely. So what I did was get the check and just kept paying them down. Once I got it to what I consider a more manageable level, it was easy to say, okay, I'm ready to go back to school. Um, so I think, I think the three things I would say is, and, and the other thing I would say also, because I knew that I wanted to have the flexibility of teaching at all levels. I knew I could, of course, go teach in law school, but I also know if I wanted to teach undergraduates or graduate school, I needed to have a PhD. So all those things, when you combine those things together, it was like, okay, of course, this is what I would do. 
and giving their salmon-like school. So it was like, yeah, <laughs> Now, Reg, you didn't go back to school, but were there other things that you did in to switch from being a litigator to being a legis you know, legislator or writing legislation? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, so what I, what I found is that the actual skill that you acquired in law school, the analytical skill, the ability to think on your feet, uh, those actual skills are what I brought to the table when I, when I was working on Capitol Hill, uh, which was my next you know, job after the, after the, the law stuff. Um, but also the credibility that comes with having a Juris Doctor degree. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would go into a room with uh, a bunch of other staffs on the, and this is in the House side, where a lot of the new staff were college graduates, but there weren't a lot of lawyers in those meetings. And I would start talking about energy policy. And they would say, oh, he's a lawyer. He must know what he's talking about. Well, <laughs> I read this report right before I came in here, but, but you have an automatic credibility, and that credibility has transferred from every, into every single job that I've had. As a dean at the, law, at the community college, I'm with PhDs and other academics, but they tend to defer to me because I'm a lawyer. And if they're going to defer to me because I'm a lawyer, I'll take that. So, <laughs> And let me add to that too, the credibility of the JD is so massive, and even in studying the PhD, I was essentially, because normally the, the average we are a PhD candidate, you can only teach undergrads, but I was allowed to teach grad students because of my JD. Mm -hmm. So it does again, you talk about how, depending on what you want to do, you necessarily don't have to get an additional degree, I think the JD, and especially JD from UVA, it carries a lot of weight. So I think if you're considering doing some other career, you should really consider whether it's necessary. But I knew, you know what I mean, the job I have now, there was no way that I would get a job without a PhD. That's just so everybody has a PhD. But what makes me stand out is the fact that I also have a JD. So. And an MBA. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to say though that um, I was able to waive any of the traditional admission tests to go back to grad school, they saw my JD and said, that's fine, you don't have to take any other um, so I want to talk, and a couple of you have touched on this already, so Jennifer, I'm going to start with you, but the implications for everything that wasn't work, so family, finances, et cetera, of making a change. I mean, in, in, it sounds like for you, there may have been a period where you were really kind of volunteering, um, but yet, you know, you still have family obligations, you still have um, bills to pay, I imagine. Um, you know, so how did that work for you? Um, well, for me, like Kit, um, my husband was very supportive. My husband is still a practicing lawyer, so I was definitely had some financial flexibility there in terms of starting my business. Um, and the volunteer piece of it. But you know what, I've thought about this a lot because I, I went to Smith College and in our house as a shorthand that we can do it all ourselves. We're women and we don't need a man to help us do it. <laughs> so I thought a lot about this. I mean, if I had not been married at the time, would I have been able to transition into my business? And the answer is yes, with a little planning. Like I didn't have to plan as much as I might have, but at the same time, um, I think you know, like uh, people have touched on sort of the financial aspect of working in a law firm, paying down your debt, all of those things. I think if you make those responsible decisions while you are working in a law firm, you can put yourself pretty easily. One of the great things about our profession is you can put yourself fairly easily into a situation where you can take that next stage of going back to school or starting a new business and those type of things. 
Um, the family piece is actually trickier. Um, I'm on all levels, <laughs> but whatever kind of work you're doing, um, it's harder to balance work and family, I think, in this country than many other countries. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's probably the piece that we've all confronted. Rich, you haven't really talked much about this. What about the family implications? So first of all, let me just say thank God for my wife. <laughs> um, so the old adage is true. Behind every successful man, there is a woman rolling her eyes. Uh, no, but, <laughs> so <laughs> my wife has put up with a lot. Uh, when, I, when, when I lost my job with Congressman Perriello, and it is, it is shocking to lose your job, even if, you know, I mean, you're in politics and that just goes with the, with the change. When Senator Robb was defeated, I had already planned to come back to Charlottesville. We were having our first child, and I knew that working on Capitol Hill was not something that I thought I could do with a young child at home, because as a chief policy advisor for the senator, I had to be there whenever the Senate was in session, and generally they ran until about 10 o'clock at night, and I just couldn't do that uh, to my wife. She would, at 6 o'clock in the evening, be looking out the blinds to see when I was coming home, and it would be four hours later before I came home. So, um, so. Uh, but when I lost the job with Congressman Perriello, it was surprised. We thought we were going to win. And, and so we lost, and all of a sudden, I was without employment. Uh, no visible means of support is how I kept thinking about it. And my wife is just like, figure out what you want to do and just pursue it. And I'll, you know, I, she was the chief of staff to the president, or she is still the chief of staff to the president of the University of Richmond. And she said, you know, we can, we can glide on, on our savings and my income for a while and figure it out. And so it allowed me to essentially start up a new nonprofit. When I went to work for this affiliate of the chamber, um, this affiliate that, that the chamber set up in 1979 to reduce unemployment and underemployment and eliminate poverty, it was just a shell. It was just an empty 501c3 that, that wasn't doing anything. And I went to the president of the chamber and said, I would like to become the sole employee of this nonprofit, which meant I had to go raise my own salary. I had to develop a strategy for how I was going to connect people with these jobs. Um, I had to build it all from scratch, so I was really kind of a, an entrepreneur, and my wife was there all along the way saying, don't worry about the money part, just figure out what you're going to do, and we will figure out the money part together, which we did. I have two uh, kids, they're now, uh, one will turn 17 next week and one is 13, and they too were very supportive. I mean, you don't really think about your kids as being supportive, but they were, they were encouraging me in what I was doing, they're proud of what I do, and so having that family support is just very, very key. Um, they've got to be along for the ride, and if they're not, then you're, you've got another struggle ahead of you. I, I should also point out, I mean, some of you might be single or chose not to be married, and so we don't want to create the impression <laughs> that you want to have a spouse. So I see some of you don't. So, so I mean, I think we have to kind of define family in a broad sense. It doesn't have to be your spouse. It could be your siblings, it could be your parents or grandparents or just friends. And I think having that supportive network about people that know you, even if just to kind of give you a moral support, a moral boost to encourage you, I think it pays, it's, it's very significant. Uh, the financial piece, if you're single or if you're not married, that's much more you've been very determined about what I really want to do this. And sort of thinking, do I need an additional degree? As everybody has said, JV, what I would always recommend is first, do you really need that degree? You know, don't be like Salmon. Don't go to the place. You know, they're useful. Interestingly, they're actually very useful now, being able to speak about different stuff. But you don't necessarily have to go get an additional degree. And if you don't need to, then I think the finance part, paying down your debt, putting your financial house in order, that's on you. Now, with that said, the spouses, wives and husbands, or partners, 
they're very useful, they're very helpful, and they know you well. And I would say, if you're thinking about changing careers, always look to them or family, you know, broadly defined to see what kind of support they can they can offer. Kid, I saw you nodding. Did you want to? No, I just was thinking that I would actually broaden that a little bit when I think about the support networks that you can build on from your contacts at UVA. I mean, one of the things we really pride ourselves on, uh, being members of this law school community, is the strong sense of community and people that you can reach out to in fields that you might be interested in learning more about. Um, did I need to go back and get uh, another master's? No. Am I glad I did? Absolutely, it lends a level of credibility to the work that I do. I do think it has opened some professional doors for me. As it turns out, I work at a tiny nonprofit populated almost exclusively by former lawyers. So we're, you know, we all came to this from different different parts of the field and practice, and we all lend that advocacy to the work that we do, and we're really passionate advocates with a strong civil justice bent. And, um, and I think that's wonderful. But I also think back to the community connections that you have from here and the ways that you can educate yourself about other fields and interests, whether they're professional or otherwise. And the networking component, I, I think, is really worth mentioning and, and worth encouraging people to draw upon. Yeah, I think if you think about your law school classmates as, as part of your family, it is absolutely true. I mean, if Tom and Molly had not let me sleep on their couch for four months while I was looking on, on Capitol Hill, uh, I never would have gotten where I am. Uh, if Greg Edwards hadn't told me about the opportunity at the Nature Conservancy, uh, I would never have gotten that job, which then led into the job with Congressman Cariello. So that part of the family also was key to, to getting to, to where this has gotten. And I also, it was one thing that we had spoken about briefly um, before this, which is the opportunity to use your current practice as a way of uh, segueing into other interest fields. And I don't mean to jump the gun with this if you're headed that direction. <coughs> Um, do a little bit of pro bono. Take that opportunity while you're in your comfortable, safe position to dip your toe in the water of something that you might want to learn about. Volunteer for a case, help an organization, volunteer for an organization, and convince your firm if that's where you are, or, or your educational environment if that's where you are, that this extra class or this extra volunteer opportunity is good and meaningful for your current practice or diversifies your current practice, whatever argument you need to make to do that. But I think it's a, a nice way of seeing if this transition will be a good fit for you down the road, uh, try it out. And then that will give you contacts in a field if you're thinking you'll work your way into it eventually down the line. I would just add also that I think that's a great way if your practice does not lend yourself to doing what it is you ultimately want to do. So for example, you mentioned you're a litigator and now you're doing the landscape work. You know, that's not necessarily something that people would see it as an immediate transition. But if you are able to find opportunities to work with entities that are doing the kinds of things you're interested in, that can be a great way, you know, board service or being involved with programming, volunteering, um, that can be a great way to kind of build that credential so that then when someone is looking at your resume, if you're switching to a job, um, a, a traditional job, that it lends credibility to your um, experience and your uh, interest in that particular subject area. I would just add, I'm so outside of like the traditional law field um, that if you are passionate about a hobby, I would say it's the same thing. Like if you've always loved hockey, um, you know, be in a hockey league, volunteer for a hockey organization, do, you know, I'm just picking that out of the blue, I don't like hockey at all. <laughs> I really do think that sometimes we get caught in our boxes and we don't have to be in those boxes. So if you have something you're really passionate about, 
there is a way to probably get involved in it in a sort of informal way that doesn't seem to have anything to do with work, and then ultimately that can transition into ways that you might not expect. So I went to my um, judges, um, a judge I think turned, he's turning 90 this year, but a couple years ago we had a big party for him in New York, and a lot of the law folks came, and I was talking to a guy who I've known for years, who is a lawyer in New Jersey, and he said, oh my god, it must be something in the water. Another woman I used to work with who was a lawyer is now a landscape designer. And he was like, I just wouldn't have thought. Right. And, but <laughs> apparently there are other of us out there who made the same transition. <laughs> so I do think that the, it's all the opportunities are there, and it's sort of finding yourself a way to get involved in the things that you're interested in. Um, just real quick, I'm also going to make a real quick plug for um, the Alumni Connection, which is on the law school's website. If you click on Alumni, um, you can go in and see, uh, log into the Alumni Directory, and you can see people who are doing all sorts of things. There, are, Obviously, there are plenty of people who are in traditional practice, but there are lots of alumni who are... Um, who have made switches of all kinds, and so you'll be able to find people in there and, and likely find someone who's doing uh, the kind of work that you're interested in. Um, the dean talked about this morning at the State of the School address. Um, she talked about our broad footprint, and um, we are everywhere. I mean, that is one of the great things about UVA Law. We are in every industry. We are in every geographic location. So um, to the extent that you are looking to make a move, there's someone out there who can help you. So I just put that plug out there. Um, so now back to our panelists. Um, you know, so one thing that comes with the law, a lot of us got into it either because we found something that we really liked either on a TV show or we heard about lawyers or we like to argue. I'm sure all of us heard that. You like to argue, so you must be, you know, you're going to be a lawyer. Is there anything that you miss about practicing law? <laughs> the things that I really loved about practicing law, I still honestly have somewhat of an opportunity to do. I really loved the the one-on-one -on -one advocacy and the direct client contact. And I go into schools now. I work with students a lot, all the time, a couple times a week. And uh, so I feel pretty fortunate, actually. But the things that I really loved from my practice, I'm still able to have be a part of my intellectual professional. Miss standing up in front of a judge, <laughs> writing a motion. I really miss the camaraderie of, of working with other really intelligent people in a law firm setting. I mean, that is a wonderful gift when you're a young lawyer. You're working with a lot of other young lawyers, a lot of very smart women, smart men. Um, I do miss that because that is a component of my job that really doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, in an intellectual level, it's not like I'm not working with intelligent people, but it's not intellectual, it's not debate. So I do miss that. However, I do not miss the hours <laughs> at all. And I don't miss, uh, I do, it's really awesome to be your own boss. That's a great thing about having your own business. You still have clients. Um, you're not gonna stay in business if you don't treat your clients the same way you would treat them when you were in a law firm. But there is just a lot of, you know, running your own show that is really nice. I miss the pro bono aspect of it. I used to, um, at some point, when I was still fully practicing, you know, once you're a lawyer, you're always a lawyer, right? Until you take your bar license. Um, <laughs> <laughs> at least that's, that's what I think. Um, my, my sense of the pro bono, because I used to volunteer for the NWACP, some Saturday clinic where you go, and people would come with their you know, problems and you would give them advice. I, I mean, I could still be doing that, obviously, but I don't do it as much. I blame it on the 13 and the 9-year-old soccer, gymnastics, and all that takes my time. 
Uh, but I think that's something I do miss that if I was still practicing, I probably would still be able to create some time to do that. Uh, besides that, um, I don't miss the long hours. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and the other piece that people might also think they might miss, the money piece. I mean, they, they pay us well as lawyers. And you know, deciding to go back to school and stuff, the salary for the, the income for the family dropped a little bit, but I think in the larger scheme of things, our lives are much, much better. And you know, you can't be thinking about, oh, all of a sudden I won't have that income. You have to think about the passion that comes with what you do. Um, so. I think what I miss about the practice of law is, uh, is the precision of it. When I was a litigator, you could, you could cite a case, you could write a brief, you, you had a precise argument to, to give to a, um, to a judge. And in the work that I do now, I'm working with a lot of people who've been kicked to the curb by the economy, their lives are in chaos, the, the, the things they have to confront are, are unbelievable, really. And it is not a contained, controlled experience. And in the law, there was some element of control. There were deadlines by which things had to be filed. You could do discovery. You knew what was going on. And in the world that I inhabit now, there is, there is a lot of chaos. And so missing that kind of precision and tightness of the law um, is, is something I miss. Okay. Um, so one question I'm going to kind of combine uh, a thought here. but. Has the job been what you've expected? And where do you where are you going from here? What's next? I'm going to Westminster Canterbury. So I'll just jump in. It's an assisted living So so my path, as you might have guessed, my path has not been, oh, I I want to be I'm going to go to law school and someday I'm going to be the Dean of Community Self-Sufficiency Programs at the local community college. It was not like that at all. What I saw is, what do I like about what I'm doing now? What do I not like about what I'm doing now? And is there somewhere that I could go that I could do more of the things that I like? So I never, I, when I left the practice in New York, I wasn't bitter. I didn't hate the practice of law. I actually enjoyed it, but it wasn't what I could see myself doing. I wanted to take the aspects of the law that I enjoyed and apply them to something else. And when I left New York, I thought, well, the thing I don't like about my, my legal job in New York, besides the hours of not being able to spend time with the family, but more importantly, I was like the 17th seat on a, on a case. And so I never knew my clients. I didn't know their faces. And I thought, I, if I'm going to be a lawyer, I want to be able to see the faces of the clients I'm serving. So I went and worked in a two-person firm, and I saw the faces of the people I was serving, and my oh my. Um, and uh, you know, uh, but but then I took that practice and said, well, what you know, what do I like about this, and what don't I like, and that's when I left to become a driver, etc. And so in each place, I try to take the thing that I like the most and find another position that did more of that. Uh, but I, I'm very fortunate. I think that I never, I loved every job that I had. It's just I wanted to do more of the parts of it that I liked. So. The one thing that was part of when I think about practicing law, at least in the traditional sense, was especially in these big law firms, and you are, you know, I was doing securities, mergers, and acquisitions, and you feel working these hours, you're trying to file something in the middle of the night. You just never really see the faces. I mean, you know, you're doing something for the benefit of corporations, and people are making money. Uh, but when you're standing in front of a classroom and you look at the student's eyes and somebody asks you a question and you explain something and the, the eyes lit up, 
It's that instant gratification that comes with me, with academia, that I love so much. So, I mean, I think teaching has been great for me, it's been great for my personality. I don't, I mean, even if I'm not teaching in, in the traditional way, I, I see myself always being in an academic setting because you feel like you're imparting knowledge of young people. Um, and I think for law practice at times, part of what you were saying, that there's always some disconnection, like what am I doing, what am I doing it for? Sometimes you don't see the basis, unless you have, of course, one or two person farms. Um, so I, I see myself, you know, I, I can't guarantee that I will always be a professor, but I can guarantee that I will always be in an academic setting in some way or the other. I don't know. I mean, I guess what I've probably most learned about myself in the last decade is I definitely like an entrepreneurial setting. I, I'm on my second child applying to college. My oldest is a sophomore in college, and my second is a junior. And I have jokingly said if I didn't have a really successful landscape design business, I would start a college consulting firm. <laughs> because like lawyers, I didn't learn as much as I should have probably about the process with my son. Um, but once I realized all the things I missed, and we weren't looking at, I realized there's a lot more to the pieces of the puzzle and that there's a lot more things you can do. And so now I feel like, I don't wanna say expert, but like I feel like I'm very knowledgeable this time around and by the time I get to child number three. Um, so I've, I guess what I've learned about myself is that, and I feel like I feel like some professor said this you know, on the first day of law school, you can do anything with a law degree. I really do believe that the teaching that you get in this law school um, and the practice of law, the ability to sort of do anything. And for me, I've realized that I like the entrepreneurial piece and I do still love the same thing I loved about practicing law, which I feel the same as you. I actually really did like practicing law. For me, it wasn't a hatred of the law. It was more of where it was in my life and my family and those things that had me leave the law. Um, but I feel like the ability to learn and master new subjects can honestly take you anywhere. So I think that's for me, I don't know where I'm going, but I have a feeling it's going to be another business in my life at some point. I think I'd like to be your first client. <laughs> 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 uh, I mean, as a lawyer, I carry coloring books and crayons and you know, figured out that my business cards, my clients were more likely to keep my business cards if they could put the sticker that they put on it. So I think I've probably had a less traditional uh, daily work environment um, professionally than did most. Um, and, and as I keep saying the broken record, I, I still have a lot of that and I'm really grateful for that. But I, I think I would have to echo, would be remiss if I didn't, about being intellectually nimble. Just the ability to, to learn in new situations and to shift gears and then accommodate quickly the new environments. I feel like there's, that those are skill sets that we learn as lawyers. Uh, framing your arguments, no matter whether you're being persuasive to a school principal or a parent or uh, a client about gardening plans. There's, there's a level of advocacy involved in all of the daily interactions that we have. Great. Well, now I turn it to you all. Any questions for our panelists? All right, well, I will ask another question then. So what was the most unexpected thing about your transition? I would say everything. Um, I mean, I have to say, like, I sometimes wake up in the morning and I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing? 
like in that there's a sense of there's mystery and I will tell you one thing about planting you can always be sure that something you do not expect will be in the ground it's a little bit like your opposing counsel there's another pipe there's an underground stream like I mean you literally have to be nimble like when people are saying can you just draw it up for me and then could I, could I do it myself and I plant it myself I'm always like it's not gonna work that way trust me you're not gonna be able to get it in the ground the way I have it in drawn up or in my mind because there's just going to be unforeseen things, which I think is just like the law, right? How about when your client turns over the doc? Oh, I didn't give you this document. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very significant to our case, right? And when the same things happen, I think I think all business and even nonprofit, everything all has a lot of connections to it that you just have to be nimble every day. Like the chaos. There's chaos in any setting. Maybe you have the least amount of chaos because you can yeah, tell the kids what to do. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the most unexpected thing actually is uh, surprising is to the, the degree I've to rely or I find myself using my law degree or my legal knowledge in many settings. My style of teaching mirrors the, what I call the great uh, Bob Scott. He was my contracts uh, professor. Um, I, and so, you know, every time when I think about how did I come up with this way of teaching, I always think about him. It was so impressive. The first year of law school, I mean, he was master, you know, you know, master law professor. So, and so maybe that's probably the most, you know, the, the, the thing that I found surprising that I find myself, okay, I know about these things and I think the analytical skills um, or whatever, all the skills that come with having a law degree, they, still, they come out in these surprising ways that I don't even know. Where did I know that? How did I know that? So again, I think to kind of reiterate that whatever it is you do, the legal education is always going to stay with you in ways that you can't even imagine. I mean, what was unexpected to me is, so I, you know, again, born in Orange County, Virginia. Uh, we went, when I was a junior in high school, went up to Washington, D.C., and I got to walk through the Capitol Dome and walk on those marble steps where they were the slightly indented where all the famous people walked up and down the steps. And it never occurred to me in a million years that one day I would be advising a United States senator. I would be sitting on the Senate floor during the impeachment of a president of the United States, advising him, uh, advising my senator about what it meant to commit a high crime or misdemeanor that warranted uh, you know, removal from office. Uh, the fact that I can work with a, 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 a single mother of five kids who, when I met her, was making $19 a week and help her through the crises of her life so that now she can be a certified nurse assistant at the University of Virginia Hospital making $28,000 a year. Um, the doors that open because of my law degree are immense, and it never would have occurred to me when I started that those things would be possible, but they are. And you just, I mean, I think part of the, the secret here is recognizing the opportunity and then seizing it and feeling confident that you can do the seize the opportunity and make the most of it when you do and that has been the most unexpected thing as far as I'm concerned I think the risk of pandering I've been really pleasantly surprised at how supportive people have been that I'm not practicing traditional law anymore mm -hmm. um, after I left legal aid I stopped going to UVA events for a while because I felt very sheepish about walking into a cocktail party and saying to Dean Mahoney that I'm staying home or that I'm you know, not practicing law. Um, and I, I put that on myself. I'm not saying that was coming from anybody, but I really did feel that way. And I was kind of embarrassed and sheepish. Um, and 
and just yesterday, Dean Golubov said that she loves walking into parties and hearing from people that they're not practicing law. And she said sometimes they sort of shake their head and shuffle their feet a little bit. And she said, and I'm paraphrasing here because she's so charismatic, and she said it so wonderfully, but um, she said, no, no, are you using your law degree? Are you thinking like a lawyer? Are you acting like a lawyer? Are you, you, know, are you using the skills that you learned in the law school? And the answer is universally, yes, I am. And so I'm really pleasantly surprised now that I'm doing this and really loving it and happy loving it at the fact that it's been so well accepted and embraced by my, by my classmates. Great. Question. Yeah. Um, in addition to um, telling us about how we can you know, use alumni for that connection and go through the website, are there any other resources that you have through the Law Alumni Career Services that can be of assistance to those of us who are looking at making these changes? So we are building those resources now. Um, right now we um, will take calls, counseling calls, and talk with alums at all stages. Um, but we recognize that those of us who are particularly on the um, excuse me, on the career services side, that we are experts at entry-level placement mm -hmm. and not necessarily experts at lateral placement. Um, and so we're working to build those resources. Um, but that said, feel free to give us a call. We're happy to talk with you um, or anyone. Um, we have a counselor who is in the public on the public service side who spends a quarter to a half of his time working with alumni and on alumni uh, placements, particularly for those, and the reason we, we started in public service is because we do get so many alums who want to do something that is more public service oriented, either going to government, going to some sort of nonprofit or direct legal services. Um, and so that has been the, the larger share of the requests, and so that's where, um, that's where we started. But we certainly work with alums um, on a daily basis. In some instances, um, as I said, just because of our capabilities and our expertise, we will um, say that, you know, we may not be the best. We can give you some starting points and some starting ideas, but it may be best that we, you know, try to help you find a headhunter or something because they may be a little bit better able to assist you. But we're there. Yes? Okay, so I, I'm, I'm going to have a hard time. Bear with me. Yes. Asking this question, but so I was listening to the panel. But it's the idea of volunteering for something you like or taking that job. I'm trying to get a better sense of how you sort of identify, in your own sort of personal experience, how you identified sort of the job that you thought was going to take you in the right direction, but perhaps you didn't think that that was the ending stop. But did you try to look forward? And that was the dumb thing I can think of. I, I too love gardening, and I'm thinking, oh well, but you know, I don't know that much about all these different kinds of plants. Maybe I could you know, volunteer at the local, um, you know, garden center. Of course, I, I'm making this up. Sure. I can tell you, I hate watering. <laughs> <laughs> if you've ever been to a garden center, that is the number one job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those poor people are watering. All but anyway, that's the example. But I mean, you would, but you would say to yourself, oh, I'm going to work at this garden center because I'm going to learn one.
I would I just would buy books to take home and read. And so for me, that's kind of how it all started. Like I definitely had this interest, and then I was going a lot, and I wasn't volunteering. Although later I did actually join a local board of my town's garden conservancy even before I had my business because I knew I had an interest in that, and that you know sort of propelled me forward. But I would say that for me, and I think from for a lot of people that I've talked to who are in second careers, a lot, it's like everything is happenstance, right? Like a lot of life is what happens, it's the John Lennon line, right? Life is what happens when you're busy making 